So we are very glad you are with us for this series called My Role in God's Story. And the, the overall sort of overarching thesis of this series is this, that I can begin to make sense out of my story by getting acquainted and involved in God's. His story is comprised of basically four chapters. Chapter one is creation. That God created us in his image to include us into this love community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he made us that way and he put us into this world. He created this world for our good. To work in the world without frustration. But then comes chapter 2, which is the fall. First man and woman rebelled against God's one and only command. The serpent deceived the woman. That, that God doesn't really want your good totally. He wants to restrict you, help you be, have you be less than free, and the woman and man believe the serpent, and they rebel against God. It's also our story. And then comes eventually, as we look ahead, chapter 3, which is grace, or some people call it redemption. God does something complete and final to solve the problem of our rebellion. He sends his one and only son, Jesus, to redeem us and restore us back into the family, back into this love community with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is great news. However, you may have noticed there's quite a bit of time, thousands of years, and quite a few pages, 680 if you're using one of the ESV paperback small-lettered Bibles we provided for you, between Genesis chapter 3 and Jesus. There's a lot of time. We... The Bible doesn't just skip from man rebelled, he fell, he walked out of the garden too, but Jesus came. There's all this time in between, between chapter 2 and chapter 3 of God's story. And it's this very long interlude in God's written story that we're going to address this morning. We saw last, we last saw Adam and Eve leaving the garden, lest they be forever separated from God because of the sin in their lives and in their heart. They walk away from Eden saddled with curses, but also hope. Judgment towards sin, absolutely, but also the hope of restoration, which Brett pointed out last week, there's a a blood sacrifice for sin. There's the promise of a serpent crusher that's still to come in Jesus Christ. So the question I often hear at this point in God's story, and that I've often asked myself is, why does it take so long for God to turn the next chapter of his story? Or more commonly asked, why does he wait so long to send a Savior? Why does it take thousands of years, 680 pages in this storybook, for God to send someone to rescue people from their sin? And it's not only your question and my question. It's a reoccurring question of God's people in the Old Testament. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? It's a consistent refrain of the psalmist. How long, O oh Lord, till you send someone to rescue us from all of this? How long will you hide yourself from us so that we can't see you? Why? Why did God take so long? Here's the answer very shortly. Man needed to see, experience, and grasp his total inability because of sin. We need to grasp our inability to do right and our inability to sort of just change on our own and please and love God on our own. We cannot do it. 
You see, I think, I think every nation and people group has its moments for sure. Everyone, everyone has their greatest generation. So in the United States, for example, as uh, journalist Tom, Tom Brokaw pointed out, there was the generation that grew up in the Great Depression and served in World War II. And we've often said in, in the country I hail from that this is the greatest generation. These people lived through sh- struggling and hardship and they sacrificed for other people and it was our greatest generation. And in Israel, God's people were no different. They had great moments. They had streaks of obedience, streaks of productivity, streaks of flourishing. And with all of those good streaks come to optimism that we have finally made it. We finally overcome that hurdle. We can finally do what we're supposed to do. Help humanity. Please God. We've finally done it. But it's a deception. And God's people needed to see that even with their optimism, that they would once again fail. They needed to see, grasp, experience their total inability over multiple generations because like us, they were stubborn, slow to admit helplessness, just like I am. Which is why this interlude in God's written story is so dang long. Because you've got multiple examples of people trying to love and please God accompanied by constant futility, constant frustration as they stumble. And we need to see that. God's people needed to see that. So what then, if that's the case, does a gracious God do in the midst of the Old Testament? He veils his grace. He puts a a veil over his grace. And the New Testament actually talks about this. You can read about this in 2 Corinthians 3 very clearly. There is a veil over people's eyes in the Old Testament. They can't clearly see God's grace. The sacrifice for sins, the serpent crusher Jesus, he's promised, he's referred to, he's foreshadowed, but he doesn't quite appear until we can grasp and acknowledge the debilitating effects of sin in our life. So we can say, God, I am totally helpless. So in the Old Testament, God gives grace to to men and women to, to act righteously, but their righteousness is always flawed. As one brilliant theologian put it, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lit. It makes me think of a funny story. We just moved into our house in the Spots area about a year and a half ago, and only some of our things were put away, but the furniture is all in place because, you know, it's Cayman, right? All the furniture is there for you. You don't get a choice. So our second or third night sleeping there I woke in the middle of the night with a splitting headache. And the only problem with that is that I put our ibuprofen away, out of the box, away already into a cabinet. It was in a cabinet near the living room, which was below our boys' bedroom. So groggy and barely able to see, I I wake up, and I stumble down the stairs. I mean, really stumble, like holding onto the rails, like, oh, my gosh, a couple times. I get downstairs, and I trip over our kitchen table. By the time I get to the two doors separating our kitchen and our living room, I hit my head on both of them because I forget they're there and finally stub my toe on the coffee table trying to get to the cabinet to the point where I had a bloody toe the next morning not realizing it. And when I get to the cabinets, I, I reach and I search through about three different cabinets until I finally find the ibuprofen. You see, everything needed for living was in place. Everything needed for my healing was in place. It was just dimly lit, and I was half conscious. And that's the best mental picture I can think of 
for this interlude in God's story, for the Old Testament. It's full of people who are half-conscious in a world that's dimly lit. Flawed righteousness and veiled grace. God gives grace, but it's dimly lit, and it produces in people a kind of half-consciousness. People are awake, but not fully awake. They can do good, but they're constantly stumbling as they try to please God. I think we like to, when we read the Old Testament, think of it like one of those old spaghetti westerns. It's a, it's a cops and robbers story. There are good guys and bad guys, and we always root for the good guys. And we expect resolution at the end of every story because, you know, the good guys are always going to win and be heroes. And yet the Old Testament is very much not like that. It's full of people who are flawed without full resolution to their story because Jesus hasn't come yet. So my job this morning is to cover these thousands of years, 680 pages in the next 30 minutes, and consider how it's also our story. So the way we're going to do this is to focus on one person, one sort of profile that captures well these two threads that run throughout the entire Old Testament. Flawed righteousness in people and veiled grace that God provides. That person is King Jehoshaphat. You know him, you love him. King Jehoshaphat, you may never have heard of him. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Chronicles 17. We're going to get to know him. 2 Chronicles 17, we're going to find his story, which is also our story. That's going to be on page 317 if you want to use one of the Bibles we provide in these chair pockets or middle ends of the aisles. And you're going to need a Bible this morning. You're going to need to quickly move through the four chapters of King Jehoshaphat's story, which I'm primarily going to tell you. Let me give you a context as you turn there to 2 Chronicles 17. Saul is the first king of Israel, and that was an absolute disaster. Then comes David and Solomon, who reign over all of Israel, and that goes pretty well. After Solomon reigns, two parts of Israel divide, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They break up. They don't like each other anymore. They want their own kings, so that's what they do. So Israel's to the north, and because they're to the north, they don't have Jerusalem, and so they don't have the temple. So what they do is they make up new places to worship, and they add in some new gods to worship along the way. Judah to the south, mostly worships the true God. But again, because of sin, they are all flawed. Every person in the kingdom is flawed. Jehoshaphat is the fourth king of Judah to try to live and to lead as the representative of the true king on earth. He too, though, is a man who experienced veiled grace and produced in his life flawed righteousness. And these are the categories at which we're going to look at his life. First of all, we're going to see that Jehoshaphat was righteous. He was righteous. Open 17, verse 1. Jehoshaphat, his son, Asa's son, reigned in Asa's place. And Jehoshaphat strengthened himself against Israel. So he strengthens himself military against Israel. So, if, so Judah does not get taken over, be influenced by Israel, and so worship all these false gods. It's a good thing. He strengthens himself and the country. Chapter 17, verse 3, talks about how Jehoshaphat generally obeys God, just like his great-great-great-great-grandfather David. He doesn't do it for show. It's genuine. We are told in verse 4 of 17 that he genuinely seeks God. He's a man who seeks God. We're also told in chapter 17, verse 7, in year 3 of his reign, he actually asks his officials to go out into all the cities of Judah to teach the law of God. Read with me, for example, in verse 9. And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went, out, went about through all the cities of Judah, and they taught among the people. In other words, Jehoshaphat, 
sent missionaries. He loved missions. This is very unique in the Old Testament, which was like a come-and-see kind of religion, Judaism was. Joshua says, no, we want to go and tell people how great God is and, and, and teach them about the law so they can follow God as best they can. And it's not just a one-time thing. In chapter 19, verse 4, we find he does this again. Chapter 19, verses 5 through 11, his righteousness continues. He implements social justice throughout all the land, especially for those who don't have the money for bribes to influence judges and people in power. In other words, he implements social justice for the poor. So missions, seeks God, implements social justice for the poor. Chapter 20, verses 3 through 12, he exhibits complete dependence on God when this horde of an army comes up from the south to attack him. And against all odds, he just cries out to God and says, God, we cannot win this without you. Look at this, chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. We're going to read that. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, some of them the Mayunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Eden. Edom. Skip down to verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. He set his face to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Then skip down, if you would, to verse 12. This is just part of his amazing prayer. He says, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. For we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Complete dependence on God. And then, chapter 20, verses 18 through 21, he unashamedly worships, sings, and delights in his God in front of everyone. Check this out, chapter 20, verse 18. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all of Judah, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Levites, the Kohathites, the Korites, stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Skip down to verse 21. When, they had take, when he had taken counsel with the people, Jehoshaphat appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. As they went before the army, they sang, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's amazing. This is a man who is, loves God, is righteous, who cares about other people knowing and loving God, spreading the word. It's a man who cares about injustice. It's a man who gives his heart to praise God and depend on him when things get tough. But he's also deeply flawed. He's righteous, but deeply flawed. If we rewind back to chapter 17, we'll find that in verse 10, forward, Jehoshaphat accumulates lots of wealth. And also lots of power via military strength. So much so that we're actually given exact numbers from different houses who become part of his army. So, for example, 300 mighty men of valor from the house of Adah, 280,000 from Jehoanan, and the list goes on, 200,000, 200,000, 180,000. It's likely we know this because Jehoshaphat took a census. And you may recall, if you know the Bible, King David getting in lots of trouble for taking a military census. It's a sign that a king is starting to trust his own power instead of God's. It would be something like us looking in our bank account and constantly checking it because we trust in money and not necessarily in God. And he counts up people because he wants to know and have that security. Yeah, I've got power. I'm the king. That shift of trust in worldly power is confirmed in chapter 18, verse 1. Look at this. Now, Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. 
It sets you up right there. And he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. That may not sound like any big deal, but Ahab was like the most wicked king ever. I'm not talking just among God's people or Israel. I mean, he's one of the most wicked kings we know of in the history of mankind. You may be familiar with his wife, Jezebel. She's a Phoenician princess. Uh, She is power-hungry, bloodthirsty, would be a diagnosed psychopath who is constantly arranging deaths of innocent people for small plots of land and for little favors. Wicked to the core. And Jehoshaphat enters into a covenant, a sacred alliance with Ahab, sealed by the marriage of his son to Ahab's daughter. And this marriage, by the way, has disastrous consequences. After Jehoshaphat dies, his son kills all his brothers, openly worships false gods of his wife, and after his death, the Bible says this of King Jehoram, he departed with no one's regret. When the Bible says of a king, he departed with no one's regret. That is a wicked, wicked king. Then, Years after this wedding between his son and Ahab's daughter, he again makes another alliance with Ahab. Look at chapter 18, verses 2 and 3. After some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria. Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for all the people who were with him. He, and then he induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead to take this city by military power. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat answers him, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in war. Now, it's interesting. He makes this covenant. He makes this alliance. He adds on a little bit of religious language. Look at this, chapter 18, verse 4. Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Oh, wait a minute. Inquire first for the word of the Lord. But it's too late. He has already said, he is giving himself, he's given his heart to this king. He said, I will be as you are, even though you're wicked and kill all kinds of innocent people. My people will be as your people, even though your people have largely just stopped worshiping Yahweh. 400 prophets come in and say, hey, King Ahab, you the man. Of course God's with you. Go up to battle. You're going to take the city. Finally, a legitimate prophet speaks and says to Ahab in chapter 18, verse 22, the Lord has declared disaster concerning you. You are going to die. And this war, this battle is not going to end well. And guess what? Even still, Jehoshaphat goes to war with Ahab even though he's, he's the one who actually asked for a truth-telling prophet to come speak. He, he hears that prophet says, disaster, 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 but he still goes. He's blind to his sin. And we would think, surely after this happens, Jehoshaphat has learned his lesson. He's going to stop making alliances with the king of Israel. It's gone very poorly for him at this point. But check out chapter 20, verse 35 through 37. Skip ahead there with, you, with me if you would. After this, King Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, this is towards the end of his life, joined with Ahaziah, the king of Israel, this is Ahab's son, who acted wickedly. He joined him in building ships to go to Tarshish, and they built ships in the Ezion Gabir. And Eleazar, the son of Dahabadu of Mariash, or Marisha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, because you have joined with Ahaziah, you've joined with him, The Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked, and they were not able to go to Tarshish. He keeps on running to the same pit of sin, the same old trough for for the security that only wealth can provide, this time in a commercial alliance with the next king of Israel. He's a deeply flawed man. So where is God in all of this? 
He's not distant. In fact, he's constantly intervening, very much intervening with free help, which we call grace. God shows grace. He does. So chapter 17, verse 3, we're told that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. He's there with him. Chapter 17, verse 5, he provides Jehoshaphat riches and honor. Chapter 17, verse 10, peace for Jehoshaphat on every side. There's no war. Multiple times he sends and speaks through four legitimate prophets. He speaks to Jehoshaphat through them. So he, he will speak to him just through prophets. Chapter 19, verse 31, and otherwise, he got answers prayer of Jehoshaphat. He also delivers Judah from certain military annihilation, which is followed by more peace. But that grace that God shows is also veiled. We can't see the fullness of his grace in the Old Testament, and neither can Jehoshaphat. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat. He establishes his kingdom. And the major reason for this is a covenant that God made with David, that his kingdom would last forever. There would always be someone on the throne, including Jehoshaphat. However, God makes plain elsewhere that this covenant is conditional. For example, 1 Kings 2.4 says this, If your descendants live as they should and follow me faithfully with all their heart and soul, if that happens, one of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. So as long as you obey, I'll be with you. Chapter 17, verse 3, we see that, right? The Lord was with Jehoshaphat, but why? Because Jehoshaphat walked in the earlier ways of his father David. It's conditional. So God's covenants in the Old Testament are great. Though undeserving, God reaches out to his people in a pledge of a relationship. I want a relationship with you, but most of these pledges are conditional. The fulfillment of them is based on our performance. If we do the right thing, God will be with us. He'll care for us forever. We don't have anything to worry about. If we don't obey, there's a lack of assurance in our lives. So, for example, what if Jehoshaphat wanders off the way, wanders off the path? Will God accept him? Will he remove his spirit from him? As God often does in the Old Testament, placing his spirit on one king, but then removing it. There's a lack of assurance, even in grace. Here's another way grace is filled. God speaks to people, but it's indirectly through the prophets. And by the way, there were 400 prophets in that story of Jehoshaphat and King Ahab coming together to go to battle. 400, and one of them speaks the truth. Can you imagine trying to discern between that? Next, next, take a number. Next, next. And you're supposed to pick out one that's telling the truth. Contrast that to what we have in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So you no longer have to wonder, what is God saying to me? What is God saying about himself and what's expected of me? Because God speaks through Jesus who lived and reigned on this earth and will reign again. Here's the other way grace has failed. God is with Jehoshaphat, allows Jehoshaphat to live, but he also allows Jehoshaphat to die. You know, if we die... I think we all want to leave behind a righteous legacy. Some people will remember us for, but to what end? Right? Remember, his son undoes every righteous thing that Jehoshaphat did. Undoes it. It's gone within a generation. There is no legacy. There is no life that lasts for Jehoshaphat. Now, what does Jehoshaphat's story have to do with ours? Thanks for waiting for that. What does Jehoshaphat's story have to do with ours? A very common kind of churchy conclusion would be something like this. Be like Jehoshaphat. 
Walk with God. Spread the word. Work for justice. Rely on him in prayer, but just avoid temptations when things are going well for you. We would be wrong to make that conclusion. The primary takeaway from Jehoshaphat's story is not a moralistic Sunday school lesson. Here's a good king we can emulate, maybe name our child after, but probably not because it's so many syllables. Let's just call him David or Josiah, right? Let's not do that. The primary lesson is this. Here's yet another, another person trying to trust and follow God, but stumbling time and time and time again because he is debilitated by the sin buried deep inside of him. He wants to know God. He wants to please God. And yet, time and time again, he stumbles because of the big no in his heart called sin. He goes the wrong way, the rebellious way, time and again. He's one of just hundreds and hundreds and generations of examples. And we're supposed to be, from the Old Testament, overwhelmed by this. This is where God's story intersects with mine. God wants us to see in the Old Testament our inability times 500, but also the shadow of a plan that he's waiting to unveil. He's going to unveil it. He's, going, he's preparing it and ready to unveil it when we're ready. When we throw up our hands and say, finally, God, I give up. I can't do this on my own. And that's when in history, God reveals Jesus Christ. So here's my first role in God's story. As we read the Old Testament, how does it intersect with our story? Here's my first rule. Acknowledge my total inability. My inability to do right and change. On the whole, guys, it would have been easy for Jehoshaphat to see himself as doing more right than wrong, more good than harm, right? He lived such a good life. And that might describe many of us here. I've done more harm than good, more right than wrong. Maybe that's why we don't see Jehoshaphat mourn be sad or repent over his sin. It's interesting. In the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles, four different kings are confronted about sin, and four of them confess, grieve, and humble themselves. David, Rehoboam, Manasseh, Josiah, they all say, God, I'm sorry. I have sinned against you. I was wrong. And they weep and they humble themselves, but not Jehoshaphat. Check this out in chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned after that battle with Ahab when he allied himself wrongly with Ahab. Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the prophet, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate you? Because of that, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, here's that veiled grace. Some good is found in you. You've destroyed all the idols out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. So how does Jehoshaphat respond? I think he only hears the good stuff. Well, there's some good found in me. He doesn't hear, Jehoshaphat, you've loved the wicked instead of God. God's God's wrath because of that is going out against you. Yeah, but at least there's some good in me. Until, of course, he sins again in the exact same way by joining with another king of Israel. This life stage describes some of us here this morning. I call it the Old Testament seeker of God, Old Testament seeker. Some of you here today are in this life stage because you believe in God. You believe in God and Jesus and all the rest, and you're a pretty good person. So so God is for you an important add-on or help to a well-behaved life. 
God's an important help to an otherwise well-behaved life. So you're an Old Testament seeker. You've not yet necessarily grasped how deep sin goes in your life. And so you were looking for a helper, not necessarily a savior. God gave one of the great Old Testament prophets named Jeremiah all these vivid, vivid descriptions to describe our total inability to do what's right. I want to share two of them with you. Jeremiah 2.22. Though you have washed yourself with soda and used an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. In other words, the stain runs deep. You can't just scrub it out with good works or becoming a better person by good discipline in your life. Or check this one out, Jeremiah 13.22. What a vivid image this is. Can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can a leopard take away its spots? Neither can you who do evil start doing good. You cannot change who you are. You cannot do it. Who you are, the sin that's within you, it runs as deep as the color of your skin. You ever try to scratch off your epidermis? It's pretty tough. I was confronted this week with just how deep my inability runs. My desire to control is one of the main ways my sin shows up. I can be a controlling person, especially with my family. Often it comes from a good place. Like I want provision for my family, so I, I check my bank account and make sure our, our little rental's going okay so we can have enough money to pay our mortgage. And I, I think on these things. I, I want Katie, my wife, to no longer experience chronic pain, so I have a tendency to give suggestions and offer fixes to her. Bad idea, by the way. We want our boys to have opportunity for every success, so I try to be there for them and spur them on when Katie's feeling worn down. So Monday evening, I walk through the door, and I try to encourage our boys to get outside. I knew they hadn't really got outside or exercised that day. It was a non-sport day for our kids after school. I spurred them on to just get outside and play. Tried to gently nudge them. Then I tried to spur them on, and I was like, you guys are going outside. This is going to be the way it is. And man, they did not want to go outside. My eldest son was so unhappy with my nudging, exhorting, maybe a little bit of just emotionally pushing him. Uh, he left the room. He was, he was very upset. And I just sat there like, oh. And so I turned to Katie. I said, okay, I know I blew it. What did I, what, what did I do wrong? And she was uh, happily obliged to tell me what I did wrong in that moment. Uh, <laughs> but she gently said to me, Ryan, you're trying to control what to do and when to do it. You're doing it in your time. These kinds of moments provide a turning point, and not only my story, but yours. It's a turning point of, can I see how deep the rabbit hole goes, how deep the sin is in my life? Will I acknowledge that even with good intentions, try to spend time with my kids, I am unable to do right on my own strength. The mom who looks around at other moms in the church and they see that one mom who lives a disciplined life and all her kids are well-behaved and always uses kind words, but she fails to do so. Will you acknowledge your total inability? Throw up your hands and say, God, help. Or will you keep trying to measure up with your own strength? Will you give up? Will you medicate yourself? Will you watch the movie Bad Moms to make yourself feel better? Are these the things we'll turn to? Or let's say the unmarried person who after a Sunday sermon on sex and purity clicks unwisely when they hop on the internet next time. 
or the next night has one too many drinks with someone else, and they go home with someone who's not their spouse again. Will you lay down your pride and admit that you, on your own strength, you cannot scrub out that stain or take away your spots? Or will you, like Jehoshaphat, move on to another good deed to balance out the bad? And I look at this in my own life, and I I say, will I, in this moment, when Katie confronts me and God is speaking through her, will I humble myself and mourn? Or will I admit, even in the good things I do, sin is so deep that I'm unable to do what's right and pleasing to God. These moments are turning points, either reaching out to God as helper or reaching out to Jesus as Savior. How will you reach out to God? Because the reality is we tend to trust other saviors. You're in church today, so my guess is you're at least interested in God being your helper to help you in your already pretty good life. He was Jehoshaphat's helper for sure. When a great multitude was coming against him, Jehoshaphat cried out to God. But in these more frequent times when Jehoshaphat was blessed and well, he trusted in worldly power and wealth to save him, to be a security. In chapter 18, he says not so much to Ahab, but to power. I am as you are. I want worldly power. I am as you are. In chapter 20, he joins himself, not so much to the wicked Ahaziah, but he joins himself to wealth. Feel like, now I'm secure. Now I'll be okay. I've trusted myself to the security that wealth provides. He cannot admit that he has misplaced trust. And I wonder, can we? Can we admit that? Can some of us here admit that you've identified yourself with gaining power and notoriety in career? Or, or you've joined yourself to the security or just the show that wealth provides? Perhaps your real savior is the people that depend on you. That's where you get your meaning, your identity, your satisfaction from. Perhaps your real savior is a a social or charitable cause or or comfort or the next pleasure to experience. Or maybe you get meaning and worth from the image you create to other people, and that's important to you. Which leads us to the third role in my story. The opportunity we all have this morning for the rest of our lives is to trust in Jesus as my savior. When we read the Old Testament, God's promises are conditional. They were conditional. Chapter 17, verse 3, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the ways of his father David. It was because he walked in those ways that God says, I'll be with you, I'll bless you, I'll be near you. Guys, without Jesus, every divine promise is conditional. There's always a veil over God's grace, and I hope we see the significance of that. How many times have we said something to the effect of, God, if you'll just answer my prayer, if you'll answer my request, I'll dedicate myself to you. I'll be more generous with my time and talents. I'll I'll care for others better. I'll be a better spouse. I'll be a better friend. I'll be a better Christian, etc. What are we expecting in that moment? A conditional promise. God will answer my prayer because I'm going to be a better person. Because I'm going to perform better for God, right? This happens all the time. When things are going well, I'm at rest and blessed. It must be because I'm obeying God well. We do this in church too. If the preaching is stirring enough, if the worship's inspirational enough, if our prayers are sincere enough, God will show up. That's when God will come. Those of us who are Christians often live like Old Testament Christians. 
we're trapped into this thinking that our performance compels God to deliver on his end of the promise. If we put in the quarters, if we put in the change, God will deliver the soda, right? He'll deliver and through the vending machine of God, he'll deliver on his end of the promise. He delivers when we deliver. Guys, Jesus has already lived up to our end of the promise because we are unable. He's the one who's already lived the life to live up to our end of the promise because we are unable. Jesus is the true promise keeper. And that's so important. This is why in the first chapter of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he's able to say this, all the promises of God, all these promises, he means all the promises of the Old Testament, all the promises God's ever made, all of them find their yes in Christ Jesus. All of them. He lived the perfect life we were unable to live. He died the death we deserve to make God's promises unconditional for all who would trust in him. No longer conditioned, no longer based on our performance, no longer based on how well we do versus how badly we do or how we do in comparison to others. The promises become unconditional through Jesus Christ. So wouldn't you like to have full assurance that God will be with you now and always? He promises this for all messed up people who trust Jesus. I mean, wouldn't we like to know that God hears every prayer of ours he promises this for all poor performers, all C-plus and D-minus students who trust in Jesus. Wouldn't you like for God to begin to transform your life and help you do what's right? He promises to do so for all who finally throw up their hands and say to Jesus, I give up. I surrender and need your help. Are you willing to own your deep inability to do right? That's where it starts that your, your good deeds or well-behaved life cannot scrub out the stain or erase the spots of your sin. Then, and only then, will you be ready to not only trust God as your helper, but to trust Jesus as your Savior. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this rich word that you send our way. We thank you for your word from Genesis 4 to Malachi. This morning we read just a, a little profile of one character in your story. But really it's all of our story. It's, it's a person who wants God's help and is seeking God, but stumbles time and time and time again. And he doesn't quite, as far as we know at least, wake up to this reality that, God, I'm helpless on my own. I need your help. May that not be us. We have the benefit of grace unveiled of the cross clearly presented in our lives, that through the cross, through what Jesus has done for us, we have full salvation, that, that every conditional promise becomes unconditional, life with you forever. You're with us now until the end of our days, that you hear every prayer, that you change us from the inside out, help us become the people we've always wanted to be. Help us not just come to you on Sunday mornings because we want a little help from God, but maybe some of you here this morning, we really need to reach out to you, Jesus, as a Savior, not just a helper. Maybe for the first time this morning, there are some here, God, who recognize that their sin runs deeper, that even in their good deeds, their good deeds are tainted and spotted by sin. Help us all lift up our hands and say, we give up. We need a Savior, and we know, Jesus, you're the only one who's ever lived a perfect life, and so we trust you we ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.